we've been doing a series called Healer, and we've been talking about the miracles of Jesus. And what we're looking at is that uh, what should we expect when our Lord is the healing Lord? Because I really do believe we can normalize pain and discomfort, and we can normalize being stuck. And so I think about uh, last year, I went in for a sleep study uh, to see if I had sleep apnea. So they, they, the doctor meets with me, and he tells me the rundown ahead of time. He says, if you have five or more episodes, waking apnea episodes an hour, and to define that, you don't remember these. This is you coming out of deep sleep into somewhat sleep and back down, just interrupts your body. So if you have this more than five or more times an hour, it's sleep apnea, and we're going to recommend that you go on a CPAP mask, which did not sound fun to me. And he said, now listen, if it's the minimum, if it's five, you need to do it. Because honestly, when it's four and we can't write the prescription because insurance don't pay for it, it's very painful for us doctors to ignore that. So I go, okay. So he says, five is, is, is beginners. Uh, 10 is moderate. 15 is somewhat severe. 20 is severe. So I go, okay. So I go in, I do the study. Uh, you look like the predator. Sensors coming all over your body. And you sleep with a camera watching you. It's very, so comfortable. So I do the study. I go home. I'm waiting. And I finally get the ding about a week later on my chart. I bring it up. I look at the results. Remember, five and up. That's sleep apnea, 20 is severe. I woke up with an apnea episode 47 times an hour. So I was double severe plus seven. And I should have had a bit of an idea that I actually had terrible sleep apnea. When I left the next morning, they're waking you up all night long. They're trying stuff, weird suction things on your face. Uh, and I woke up and I was driving home and I was like, boy, my, my chest feels relaxed and loose. That's weird. Because I normalized terrible sleep. I thought, well, that's how everybody feels. You wake up and you feel like trash first thing in the morning. That is how everybody feels. Uh, I thought everybody wakes up and their chest is tight for like the first hour. And if they go, <sighs> they will cough their head off. I thought that was everybody. It became normal to me. And people will ask me, well, what is it like now that you've got the, you got the machine, you sleep with it, and you know, what does waking up in the morning feel like? And it feels, well, it feels kind of like this. Sound. Oh, we tested it. There we go. There we go. It's somewhere in that ballpark. That's kind of what waking up feels like once you get sleep apnea treatment. Uh, it's a completely new dimensional thing. It's too long and too boring to go into all the ways bad sleep hurts you, but essentially it releases an enormous amount of cortisol, the stress hormone, into your system, and that wreaks unbelievable havoc. And so it has this immediate benefit and then this ongoing one. It's a new dimension of being healed that I did not know about because if you've never slept well because you've always had sleep apnea, you don't know what it's like to sleep well. And so there's this very new way of understanding things now to where it's not the best thing in the world. I look stupid every night I go to sleep. Darth Vader, full mask. It's like cinched super tight so there's no air leakage. And it's not the most comfortable thing in the world, but I refuse to sleep without it now because I know what it feels like. And now I feel like someone punched me in the chest if I wake up because I've now normalized healing. There is a new dimension of healing in a way that we need to reimagine the world as to what life can be like when God comes and brings relief and brings healing because we don't worship any God, we worship the healer God. For many people in the Gospels, their life is dramatically reimagined as Jesus goes passing by passing by on his way somewhere, going to go do something else, and they, crawl, they, they cry out, they come to him, 
and life is dramatically different. And we have more than the Lord that passes by. We have the Lord that travels with us, who is with us all the time. And in with the Lord and with the healer, we should have a brand new and fresh expectation. So we're going to read one of these stories today. We're going to read a story about someone who, whose life was dramatically changed with Jesus passing by. We're going to start in uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. When Jesus had again come across by a boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came to him, uh, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Uh, and, uh, we'll, and it says, and Jesus went with him. We'll stop there, though. In this day, uh, we have to understand something about the, the status of, of daughters at this time. In this culture and in this time, you really couldn't have a lower status than an unmarried woman. They had um, basically no legal right, and so the person who would advocate for them, who would, who would champion their cause, was their parent, and usually the one with the most power was the father. And so we find out later on in the story, she's 12, so she's very young. Um, she's, so she'd be unmarried, a young girl, and it's her dad's job to take care of her, entirely dependent on her parents to care for her. So she's at home, and she's sick, and Jairus comes to Jesus. And he displays incredible desperation, because you'll remember what it said of him. He was a synagogue leader, and for him to come to Jesus is a big deal, because the rift at this point in the Gospel of Mark between Jesus and the synagogue is irreparable. The times of them welcoming him to come in and read scripture on the Sabbath morning, it's over. He is not welcome. He, the leaders have begun to conspire against him on how to get rid of him and to kill him. And the, the leadership of Judea has turned against Jesus. But those that are following him are, are the populace. It's the people. So for him to come to Jesus... And to ask for help is an incredible act of desperation. Bowing down to him makes it even worse because bowing down is a clear recognition of a person that, or a person would do this to recognize you're greater than me. So you have a synagogue leader. This wouldn't have been necessarily a Pharisee. He would have been in charge of the building, very wealthy, very powerful. He would have overseen what goes on there. And... Uh, for him to come and bow to Jesus is going to place him in a tough spot. It risks his whole life, his livelihood. They could, give, they could get rid of his job, his standing, the honor of his family. But these are the things we do for our daughters. So he comes and he falls at his feet. And it's very hard to tell the quality of his faith. What is he, does he really believe in Jesus as the son, or is he just that desperate? And what's interesting is Jesus doesn't seem to care. The man makes no declaration of faith like, I know who you are, or I believe in you, though the others don't. He's just so desperate, he asks for help. Many salvation stories with God begin in this crisis pleading of someone coming and saying, I, I don't know where I am, I'm stuck. We, we actually see this picture play out in the Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life, where George Bailey, he's lost everything, and he's in the bar, and he, he says, God, I'm not a praying man but if there's anything you can do to help me. And he has this sudden, uncharacteristically religious moment. So I guess the question is, for people that are in this moment of when it gets so desperate and they, they find themselves praying when they never do, 
and they find themselves looking to God and they're not quite sure and it's desperation and not this deep conviction faith like Peter had, you're the son of God. How authentic is that faith? The answer is apparently and abundantly authentic enough. God takes people up on that faith all the time. I heard that Martin Luther uh, had a transformational experience where he got converted and followed Jesus because he got scared in a storm and thought he was gonna get struck by lightning. And God took him up on it, and there he is leading the, the Reformation a few years later. God hears the prayers of the desperate. It is a lot more comfortable and easy for Jairus to say he doesn't believe in Jesus and he can get along with the Pharisees, synagogue leaders, teachers of the law, priests. He can get along with them when he doesn't need Jesus. But now he needs him, and we find that God doesn't push him away for his suspect faith, and God hears his plea, his desperate plea. He hears it because he feels that father's heart desperate to protect his kids, that would do something desperate to act on their behalf. It's a father's battle for his children. This man would risk public faith in the son to save his children. And God would be crazy enough to send his only son to save his children. There's a crossing over of hearts and similarity here that our Father in heaven can't look over. And the son responds. Continuing on the story, we're going to be, once I find my spot, 24. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that the power had gone out from him and he turned around to the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see, people are crowding against you, the disciples said, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around uh, to see who did it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, she told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. There's a, some historical stuff we have to understand about how, how things were religiously about women and bleeding. There's a deep symbolic thing in the temple that to be before the presence of God, there was a lot of preparation one would go through. It included bathing, and it might include shaving your head if you what value took, haircutting, you had to be clean. And for women, they, they could not be menstruating when they came before the temple. And this was a symbolic picture that's later really fulfilled in Christ of the point is, is that it takes great purity to be around God, and God gives us that purity. Never before has this, this bizarre command of Moses been so clear in its symbolism as what Jesus does today in cleaning and preparing us to be in his presence in this particular woman. And so it was meant to be a symbolic thing to where everybody had to do something to be prepared and ready for it. But what happens is that there is sin nature in the hearts of men in power, and there was an incredible misogyny that broke out over this command and an incredible misinterpretation. In fact, there are records of rabbis that taught that even a droplet of spit from a woman who was menstruating would defile an entire city. 
And so they were quarantined and kept inside, and it was brought to an incredible level and a very disturbing point. It's important to know that that is not the Bible standard. I'm not sure if you've seen it. There's a documentary that won a Pulitzer Prize called Period End of Sentence. And it's this problem, this phenomenon around the world where certain countries, girls can go to school until they begin menstruating and then they have to leave. And so their education just ends and it's this grave injustice. And so the the documentary follows this and the issues of it. And it is an ongoing picture of the kind of separation from how God wants us to be and what our sin nature does. It is incredibly clear in Scripture that women are co-heirs with Christ and that in Jesus, the curse is reversed, that misogyny is, is, is an, it's a, an a, a outliving of sin. Part of the curse said that your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. But Jesus comes to bring an end to that. There is no home for misogyny around Jesus. He is here to end the curse, to end these things. And we see God raising women up into leadership all over. This is the very theology that our denomination, Foursquare, stands on when we affirm women in senior leadership. From our founder, Amy Semple McPherson, who founded Foursquare, to all of my co-equals that are senior pastors that are women, we believe that Christ has come to end this age of misogyny and to bring all people in as co-heirs. But this is the resistance that happens, that we see it again and again, that, a good, that something that was meant for something else, a symbolic command becomes this thing of grave control. And that spirit of grave control that you may have seen in the documentary, period, end of sentence, or that we see in this today is something she's lived in forever because she has a condition where, where she is always in this state. And she has been for 12 years. This is a very difficult situation for her to be in. But Jesus comes to end the curse. We see him doing it all the time, and we see him doing it here immediately to go beyond this misogyny and to care about a co-heir with him and with his sons. This is a very desperate time, and she has been made very desperate, losing all of her money, being cut off from everywhere. She could not go before the temple, could not make sacrifices. This had serious salvific implications for herself and her religion. And she's very desperate, exactly like Jairus. And the interesting thing is culturally, she shouldn't be there. There was restrictions that women could not, when they were in this state, they could not be in public areas lest they touch someone and defile them. And so they had to basically just get stuck inside or at their own property and wait and she shouldn't be there. And in fact, the, the narrative goes out of its way to tell us this was a jostling crowd. He gets up to leave and everyone's around him. He, people are bumping into each other, so much so that the disciples find it ridiculous that Jesus thinks he could pick out of all of that stimuli one person that grabbed onto his cloak. It's filled with people. And this really fills in the background when it says that uh, she comes forward with trembling and fear. And when she says, if I can just touch the hem of his cloak, this, this idea of going and touching it, sometimes we think of it like that. Her faith was that's all she needed. When it's far more accurate to say she felt like that's all she was worthy for. She almost plans it like a bank heist. Like, I'll get in. Nobody will know I'm there. And I'm going to touch the cloak. I'll get healed and I'll sneak out. Now, I don't mean to say that, that, that those suspect plan in any way erodes her incredible faith. Think about this faith for a minute. Honestly, like a bank heist, she's confident and certain that there are goods in the safe. 
and that she can get it and leave. Most people weren't sure if Jesus had goods in the safe. They weren't sure if he could do the healing. That's not even a thought to her. People are asking, by what power does he heal? And she's confident that, that he's healing by the power of God. He'll heal me, and I can finally go into the temple and worship. It's a bargaining. I won't touch his hands. I'll sneak in. I'll get my healing, and I'll sneak away. Nobody will even know I was there. That is an amazing faith. And it's really important also to understand in this imperfect faith, kind of sneaking in, and, and, I'm, and I'm breaking the rules a little bit, but is it worth it in the end for me to get my healing? Yes, I'm going to go do it. We see this amazing faith met by Jesus with amazing grace. Those two things will always come together. When we have incredible faith, incredible grace will meet us. She did not have to have perfect, pure ideas, plans, and motives. The plan was good enough. And she finds herself dramatically healed. She thinks things like, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not worthy of this crowd, and if they knew what was happening in me, they would throw me out. But maybe, maybe if I'm quiet, I can secretly get what I need and leave. And to her amazement, Jesus stops the parade for her. It ends in that moment, and she gets full attention. She is worthy in Jesus' eyes for stopping the entire procession. There's a dying 12-year-old girl belonging to an influential family that, who knows, if he heals her and the synagogue begins to look his way again because he's healing their people, maybe it'll be a thing. But he stops, stops right there for this woman because she matters to him. Too many Christians live out their faith thinking, well, I'm not really one of the ones that God wants. I'm really, I don't, I don't have the personality and I don't have the gifts and I don't have the, the chutzpah that it would take to have just the courage to do this thing. And so maybe if I'm quiet and maybe if I'm humble, I can sneak in and just be with the Lord. And I need you to know something, that if that's you, if you feel like one of the add-on Christians that jumped on the fenders as the truck went down the road, you got to know that Jesus stops the parade for you. That it stops for you. You're the reason for the cross and its pain. If God wanted one type of person and one type of gifts and all Christianity's spiritual formation was meant to make us that one person, he would not have made such diverse people. C.S. Lewis said that sin makes all men the same. Surely heaven will be filled with more diverse people than hell. That God has created an abundant group of people to live out their faith and to show different parts of him. Just think about how ridiculous of a thought it is that if the church is supposed to reflect Jesus, that one person could do it. If the church is meant to reflect the creator of the universe, one image, one type of person with one set of gifts would do it right. It's going to take the billions of us to do it. Each person empowered in what God has for them. That we are worthy of his attention. Who we are, uniquely who we are. You want to hear something funny? When I applied to, to step into senior pastor last year, one of the most difficult things for me was coming to terms with the fact that I'm an introvert. I get overloaded. I just want to go climb a tree, you know? And there's no, like, senior pastor that's an introvert, I, hard, I know hardly any. And I just had to believe that it's okay for me to not be all of the pastors. That, I mean, I respect them, and I love what they do, and I'm just not going to quite be like them. Come in, you hire Jason. That's how you fix it. <laughs> uh, 
We can't keep thinking that, you're, that we're supposed to be a certain very specific image. It takes all of us in the different ways that we are. Oftentimes, I think what really keeps us from being with the healer and getting healing and the healing he wants to pour out on us is this deep sense of unworthiness that uh, I'm, I'm a tack-on, I'm an add-on. I'm, 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 if you order now in the next 10 minutes, they throw me in for free. But we matter. God stops this for a woman who we don't know what she does. We don't know what she's going to do, but we do know one thing. She's healed, declared a daughter of God, and told to go and live her life of peace. Now, the cleansing is really something. Because according to, to even the law, uh, if, what she would, if she were to, to touch someone, especially knowingly, they would become unclean. And we see this is the problem, the double bind, even for people who have skin conditions. They call it leprosy. We don't even know what it was. Could have been a bad case of psoriasis, but they couldn't touch anyone. And so when Jesus touches them, we've got a problem. Because something's going to transfer. And we find with Jesus is that the most powerful thing is that which transfers. And this is kind of the idea of her, her fear when she has to come forward and says, he told Jesus everything, really confessed it. Because actually, she kind of got away with it. No one saw her touch the cloak. Jesus doesn't even know who it was. She could have continued on with plan A and walked away. But she tells him everything because it was a little bit culturally off to reach out and intentionally touch somebody. And we find that touching Jesus doesn't put her impurity onto him, but it puts his purity onto her. This is, this is the gospel truth 101 that when we come into contact with Jesus it's not our it's not our problems that go to him it's his wholeness that comes to us he took the problems a long time ago and they're gone he lifts them away throws them into the same chasm he created long ago and his purity comes on to us we should really honestly if we if we are worshiping Jesus and we fellowship with him we should expect daily healing renewal at the touch of Jesus he is not passing by. We are passing by with him. We become so concerned that, uh, that we have to satisfy some sort of holy standard to be with Jesus, that we have to satisfy a certain uh, thing to go through before we can pray and worship, and we must be prepared for him. When the fact is, if you feel dirtier than you've ever felt before, and if you've been incredibly unfaithful, and if there's uncleanness within you, there is only one fount I know, and it's nothing but the blood of Jesus, that that is where we go, that we don't wait to be clean with God. It is his contact with us that makes us clean. It's his fellowship with us, and it's not about being worthy. It's about getting close and letting him put his healing hand on us. His benediction to this woman is really powerful because he assumes the role of priest, he tells her to go in peace. And the, the phrasing and everything that he says to her is what a priest would say in a temple when he has purified somebody, or he's got, he's, he basically would say, I watched, I observed this, I audited. You satisfied the law of Moses. You're pure, go in peace. It's supposed to happen in the tabernacle or in the temple, and it's supposed to be a priest. And we see Jesus in this moment assume that role of priest and declares she's pure. Pure as the temple would ever even dream of making her. Pure in that place, in that city street. Isaiah 40 verse 4 says that every valley 
will be raised up and every mountain hill made low when the Messiah is here. Meaning every high place, Temple Mount, the high places, Mount Sinai, these high places are brought down and they are everywhere. That in the age of the Messiah, the high places are brought low and his way is made clear and he is everywhere. Jesus will do sacred things in the alleyways, sacred things on the, on the street corners. The bustle of the city streets might as well have been the tiles of the temple up on the hill. And the touch of Jesus purifies better than the temple altar because the temple altar would strike dead a person filled with sin, where Jesus' hand strikes dead the sin within a person. The healing of Jesus will happen anywhere, absolutely anywhere. With those who have the faith to reach out and to say, Lord, come work in my life, to go get in contact. And we travel with that power every day. The Holy Spirit is with you in your seat right now. It's going to be with you in the car when you drive home. It's going to be with you tonight when you go to sleep with you tomorrow when you wake up in the morning and the Spirit of God will greet you as you get to work the next day. Everywhere we go, God is with us. And that promise we see happening in verse 34 when he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. It's hard to hear it in English, but there's this sense of go in peace as if peace is this, now this red carpet laying out before her. Starting here, go out in the peace that I've made for you, the peace that is now here, that will continue to roll out. This story began with a father desperately seeking to bring his daughter some healing. And we're going to end it here today with a woman whose father wasn't there to advocate for her. And she finds a father in Jesus. Jesus calling her daughter is a very critical thing because it's the first time he's used a familial title like this for anyone in this gospel. It is a big moment. It is a precious thing that's bestowed on her, a precious title. We find that when we get saved, God starts to assume roles that we were let down in. He is a father to the fatherless, a protector to those who weren't protected. He is a counselor to those who receive no counsel. He educates people on wisdom who were let down by their teachers that didn't educate them in wisdom. He continues to go with us, healing everything from child wounds to the everyday pains as his spirit and his grace and his touch washes over like the ocean tide. There's this amazing image of her healing where there's something immediate that happens. She feels that in her body she's made well but the continual healing goes with her as there is the fatherly presence to watch out for her and advocate for her now. She did not have a Jairus to go ahead of her. No one paid her hospital bills. She broke her own bank trying to fix this problem. And she has a father in the Lord. There is a change in relationship that happens when we first get saved that makes it to where there are things that for her this could be healed of in a moment, but the kind of wounds that comes from not having a protector and to always being cast down, these are wounds that will heal as the Spirit of God walks with her and is with her and heals her on the road. It's an incredible second healing. 
the grace follows her and Jesus becomes her legal guardian and her father and her protector. We have this uh, odd problem where we see when God rescues us and we, and we see that he rescued us from sin and death, but we need to have enough spiritual sight to see what he's rescued us to. That it's, it's a crucible through what he's done and then we have this presence of God that brings ongoing healing and renewal to our lives. And just like this woman, we find that we are cleansed and healed to belong in communities again, to reappropriate relationships again and to grow up in what God has for us. This isn't just an annoying thing or something that got in the way. This is the thing that got in the way of her having friends and having uh, family and loved ones around her. It is the deep healing and it restores her to community and gives and frees her to worship. We have a problem though of not seeing that and living like we're still unclean. I, my, some friends of mine years ago took in foster kids, and the first night they took them in, they came from a horrible home, three kids, drug dealer parents, uh, their dad went to prison for murder, the murder was committed right in front of them, it was a very, very bad situation, and they went to this house, and the first thing they did is they ordered Papa Murphy's pizza, and they got movies of Blockbuster, so now you know when the story took place, <laughs> and they, they had this family night. And the kids seemed to do fine. They put them to bed. But the next morning, they woke up, and they found that they had all woken up early before the rest of the family. They went into the kitchen, and they were digging through the trash and eating pizza crust for breakfast. Because for them in the house they lived in, that was normal. And that was what life was like, and that's how you cared for yourself. And they didn't realize how different of a house they were in. People that were going to feed them, that were going to keep giving them good things. It wasn't just one meal of pizza. It wasn't one binge, let's hang on to it. We're going to make breakfast. Then we're going to have lunch, and you're going to have a safe and stable home. There has to come a point where we experience enough God that we realize we are in a safe and stable, continual healing path and healing home with a new father. The faith God has wants us to express is this to live every single day as if you're as pure as he declares you to be. To not shy away, to not feel that we aren't welcome, that we're not supposed to be there, or that we have to do something before we get there, but to realize we are in a brand new living way with God that goes with us and, and follows us. Made clean, made pure, and the healing continues. To live every day with a desire to live full of grace and to experience the touch of God because some healing happens in the twinkling of an eye like this woman experienced, and some of her healing will happen over years as she goes in peace with the new father that watches over her. Let's pray. Lord, today we give you our full attention. God, I pray that grace and mercy and a sense of being welcome that maybe we can't say what it feels like because the grace of God is uncommon. The mercy of God, the patience of God is something we're not familiar with. Lord, I pray that we would reach a level of healing, that we would quit living like orphans that fend for ourselves. That we would quit living uh, and normalizing pain. But Lord, we have a kind of faith that we would just go to you because we know we're welcome and that your grace has made a way for us to be with you no matter how we feel, no matter what's inside of us, no matter how ashamed we are, no matter how suspect a motive might be at your touch, we're made healed and we're, we're, made, we're healed and we're made whole. 
So Lord, I pray that the areas of our life that we're so ashamed of, God, would you come and live and inhabitate those places with us to the fullest level? Would we be able to trust in you and have a desire every day to feel your touch until we have normalized not pain and sin and destruction, but holiness and wholeness in life with the Lord? God, I pray for healing and restoration to be in this room. I thank you, Lord, that it will follow us, that you will be here as much as in this place as in any place, that the low places are made high, the high places are made low, and you do your sacred work everywhere.